John 20, 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails, and I place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of God. Hey everyone, really great to be with you guys again. Um, it's a special welcome for joining us online. Great to have you with us. And to see everyone here again is just really, really nice to be seeing people each week. I think today was our most chaotic crossover with the 9am into the 10.30, but really, um, really just fun and nice to feel like a community again. So, um, so good to be here with you. And I just want to say a big special thanks to those of you who have joined us um, throughout this Doubt series for the last few weeks and today, particularly if you're someone who would identify as uh, wrestling with doubt in some way. Whether that's because you've never described yourself as a follower of Jesus and you're looking into it, there might be things that maybe attract you in it or you find curious, but there's still these big questions you're working through. Or whether that's because you've been a follower of Jesus for some time, but right now, for whatever reason, you're asking questions, you're not really sure. And so, like Jez said, we wanted to start this series by tackling some of the, I guess, the acute and big question-form doubts that people have from time to time. So looking at hypocrisy in the church and, and suffering and problems with the Bible. Um, and there's more that we could have done but didn't. But these are, I guess, some of, the, some of the big ones. And they were amazing talks. And like, you know, big credit to Jez. To tackle those three topics in a row is no small feat. And I just know from chatting with many of you guys in the last few weeks that They've been helpful, they've been thought-provoking, they've been engaging uh, and, and, and helpful. But I'd say it's possible, or maybe even likely, if you are someone who is struggling with doubt, that those talks alone probably haven't brought you to a place of feeling 100% certainty that Christianity is true. And that's not a knock on the talks at all, but that's just simply the reality that our worldviews are typically not formed in 30 minutes. Our beliefs are not quick to change, they take time. So you might be kind of left with, at the end of this series, this sort of question still nagging at you. Well, what do I do if those doubts still remain? What do you do if you still don't feel sure? What if you wished you weren't doubting, but the reality is you still doubt? They're still there. Doubt isn't a um, particularly pleasant thing to go through. I don't think many people like being kind of suspended in uncertainty about the things that matter most, about what life is all about and what what we're doing with ourselves. And I think I've shared up here before that the doubt has been a recurring theme for me in my life as a follower of Jesus. I think it's even maybe possible that I wrestle with it more than the average person. I don't know if you make much of personality quizzes, but on the Myers-Briggs scale, I come up as an INTJ, which one in 50 people are. But 
that is the personality type on that grid of 16 that statistically has the most people in it that identify as atheist. Now, it doesn't surprise me that much to actually hear it. I find it a bit disconcerting, but I think the same thing that, <laughs> that makes me... You know, stru I struggle to choose what to watch on Netflix because I need to analyse the depths of like, the IMDb reviews and the ratings to, to get the right choice. Then when it comes to even bigger stuff, like what do you believe about the, the essence of life, that I find it impossible not to question things, and I find that unsatisfactory answers really bother me and gaps in logic irritate me. And so from time to time, as the years roll on, I, I get these moments where I find myself asking, can I believe this? Can I believe in a God who I can't see? Can I honestly call myself a Christian when I feel like there are still things I don't have answers for and I don't have figured out? And when I've been in seasons where that doubt has been quite acute, I've often felt like that doubt is, I guess, some kind of spiritual handicap. That so long as that doubt exists, that I'm prevented from experiencing all there is to experience as a follower of Jesus. That I'm kind of missing out or kind of slowed down or can't really get all the life that there is to offer in this Christian worldview. And sometimes, and maybe you've felt this yourself, I even get this kind of feeling of like fraud that maybe I'm not being fully true to myself by, by following Jesus, while at the same time holding in my mind some tensions or doubts or uncertainties. And so that's the question I want to work through today. Can I believe and still doubt? Or another way of maybe putting it is, can I doubt and still have belief? Or maybe a completely another way of putting it would be, is there a path forward, a way to follow Jesus with integrity, while some doubts remain? And my answer is going to be, yes, there is. But I actually want to hopefully take it a bit further than that, further from just making a case that it's theoretically possible for doubt and belief to coexist in some space. But I'm hoping to show today that doubt might even be the means that God uses to deepen or enrich your faith. The doubt isn't the discomfort of riding a bike with a flat tyre, which just simply makes the art of riding a bicycle more difficult indefinitely. But the doubt is actually more like the discomfort of having the training wheels come off that may make you wobble and struggle along for a while, but ultimately leaves you more confident than before. I want to focus on how doubt provides an opportunity to deepen faith. And I want to do this by spending some time looking at, at Thomas, this story that, um, that Jez just read for us. But before we do that, I'm just going to pray. And I encourage you to pray along with me in this moment. And I would maybe even encourage you, if you can and if you're up for it, if you're someone who's not even sure if you believe in God, maybe just in your own mind as I'm praying out loud, just say something like, God, if you're there, let me know or talk to me. And if that feels too weird, you don't have to do it, but that's something you might want to do in your own head in this time. I'm just going to pray that God would speak to us in this time. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we can be together and uh, be a community um, and that we've even got the technology that means some can be joining us online as well. And we just ask that whoever we are and whatever's going on for us at the moment, that you might be speaking to us, revealing yourself to us and helping us just along with that little next step in whatever whatever's next on our journey in, in discovering more of you and who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing I think we see that I find helpful, at least, from this story of Thomas, um, this guy that all doubting Thomases are named after, is that doubt isn't the exception, it's the norm. Sometimes I think we can think that when we are doubting that something peculiar is happening to us, that we must be kind of the odd one out or going through some unique experience or that something is fundamentally wrong and not right with us because we have these doubts. 
But we see in the story of Thomas that we are not the first to doubt. If you just look back at the story in verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, which just means the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and my hand into his side, I will not believe. So this fits into the Gospel of John, one of the accounts of Jesus' life after the resurrection. According to the Gospel of John, Jesus, risen from the dead, appeared to all but one of the twelve of Jesus' closest followers. But for some, who knows what reason, Thomas wasn't with them. And when he's told that Jesus is risen from the dead, he can't bring himself to believe. It just seems too far-fetched. Sometimes I think we can think that like ancient people were stupid and they found things like resurrections easy to believe in. But what we see in this story is that Thomas knows that that doesn't happen. People don't rise from the dead. So even when his closest friends say that they saw it, he just can't bring himself to believe. He doesn't want to get his hopes up maybe that his friend Jesus, who he's followed and trusted, who has now been killed in front of him, has come back to life and then have those hopes dashed yet again. And when we read the story, if it's one you're familiar with, sometimes maybe we think, okay, well, you know, Thomas is the odd one out. He's the kind of one in 12 who doubts. He somehow must have, I guess, less faith than the other disciples because only one in 12 of them seem to have this problem. But while it's true to say that only one in 12 doubted, it's also true to say that 100% of Jesus' followers who didn't see Jesus face-to-face uh, doubted. So he's, he's the only one who didn't get this kind of thing of seeing Jesus, so of course he's doubting. It's natural. Thomas embodies what I think is the natural response to the claim that someone has risen from the dead when you haven't seen someone risen from the dead. And so it's kind of in this account for, for us just to help us realize that doubt isn't the exception, it's the norm. And that's the case amongst even people that you'd think of to be, I guess, the heroes of faith. So, so Mother Teresa, who was a, a nun and missionary who devoted her life to the service of the poor in India, and who's like in our like pop culture, like this, this kind of almost this symbol of faith, um, experienced doubt. And people didn't really know that during her life, but when she died, um, people got a hold of her private letters and journals. And that's what you do when someone dies. You rummage through their stuff and dig up all their secrets. But, um, but when people read her journals, they see that throughout her life, decade after decade, she struggled with doubt. She writes of times when she says, I have no faith. I'm told God loves me, but nothing touches my soul. She talked of um, an empty place in my heart where there is no faith. She says that she felt a terrible pain of loss of God not wanting me, God not being God, of God not really existing. And she's someone we hold up as that is what faith looks like. And if you look at some of the kind of, you know, the greats from church history, the people that write the, the hymns that we sing here in church, or um, even if you talk to older, wiser Christians you know, you'll, you'll find people again and again and again describe seasons of their life where they feel that God is not there, that he's not listening, that it's just dark, that it's like talking to a brick wall when you pray, or even just questioning the fundamental truthfulness of Christianity. And so I think we've got this story to help us see that this, this is something that's going to come up. There is something normal in this, that this is a normal thing to go through, to doubt and to have questions as a follower of Jesus. But what we're going to see more in this story is not only is it just something that happens, but it can actually be instrumental in deepening faith. And so for the rest of this, I'm going to be talking about some of the opportunities that doubt provides to grow in faith. But before I do that, I do just want to say this like, quick kind of caveat that I'm going to be speaking about how doubt can be good, 
But I don't want to make out like it's the case that there isn't such a thing as bad doubt or dangerous doubt, particularly for someone who's following Jesus. In the BBC podcast, How They Made Us Doubt Everything, they tell the story, the podcasters, of how the tobacco industry responded to the uh, gradual and overwhelming discovery that there was a link between smoking and lung cancer. And back in, I think, the 50s and the 60s, there was, the evidence was growing. Basically, it was all just pointing to the fact that, yep, there is an undeniable link between tobacco and lung cancer. And so it was looking like, well, it was kind of obvious, something's going to have to give. You're not going to be able to advertise this stuff. You're going to have to have restrictions on how you sell it, and et cetera. But the podcast explores how the tobacco industry hired the, you know, the best PR firm around to manage the situation. And the strategy that they implemented in dealing with this crisis for the tobacco industry was one of just questioning the findings. According to an internal memo that's kind of surfaced, they said this. They said, doubt is our product, since it is the best means for competing with the body of fact that exists in the minds of the general public. So the tobacco industry couldn't disprove the claims that were leveled against them, and they certainly couldn't prove the opposite, that smoking was safe. So what they did was they just kind of murkied the waters. I threw questions out there just to kind of make people a bit unsure. So they put out things like, look, maybe it's tobacco, but maybe it's asbestos, or maybe it's genetics. We can't know 100% for sure that this is the cause of all these cancers. And it might not seem like a very effective strategy, but it, it worked. It brought them decades of being able to go on acting like it wasn't proven that they were the, the cause of all of this illness. And the point of the podcast is that that strategy has been used again and again and again. It's the same, the same general approach that the fossil fuel industry took in questioning kind of the science around climate change so they could just keep getting away with what they were doing, that kind of thing. That's the point the podcast makes. But I reckon that, that doubt can have the exact same effect in the Christian life. Doubt can be this kind of smokescreen, this haze we, we put up before ourselves to, to, to enable us to avoid commitment. Because if we tell ourselves, well, we can't know for sure that God's real, we can't know for sure that Jesus rose from the dead, then we kind of don't have the responsibility then to follow him. We don't have to change our lives, we don't have to make sacrifices. And so doubt can be, at times, just us giving ourselves a license to do what we want or to open the door just to tearing down a worldview that deep down we don't want to be true because it impinges on some part of our life. It can be something that we use so that we can choose to be a bit paralyzed in how we live, not having to obey Jesus. And so if you see yourself doubting in that sense, where you're kind of hoping that you can break this down and you're hoping it doesn't turn out to be true because it means you can do what you want to do, then I'd caution you to be very careful about how you go about doubting. I'm not trying to blindly glorify doubt here. But all of that said, I'm going to make an assumption for the remainder of this time which is if you're tuning in on Facebook or you've come into this building and you're someone who's doubting, the reason that you're here is probably because you'd like to believe. You, you're hoping that it's true, maybe like Thomas is, but there's still something just stopping you from committing, something that's just kind of holding you back and you just kind of want to, want to work your way through that. You want to have an experience of God that's satisfying and you want there to be enough of a foundation to build a life upon Jesus. So if that is a description of you as a doubting person, I want to just lay out for you three opportunities that you have before you in your doubt to deepen or enrich your faith, which is simply that doubt gives you an opportunity to grow, doubt gives you an opportunity to follow, and doubt gives you an opportunity to trust. So firstly, doubt gives you an opportunity to grow. 
One thing that doubt often does, and I've found this in my life, is it forces you to actually grow in your understanding of God. When you're going through life and God doesn't do something that you thought he would do or should do, or doesn't reveal himself to you in the way that you would ask him to or expect him to, you actually have to change and expand your view of God. So for Thomas in this story, he did not expect Jesus to die. He thought Jesus was going to be this kind of king who's going to fix everything about his life and, 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 and the whole life of his nation, and yet Jesus gets crucified. And then, on the other side of that, he didn't expect Jesus to rise from the dead. Thomas had some faith. He, he was following Jesus, he saw miracles, he believed in God, but he didn't believe in a God that would send his son to die. He didn't believe in a God who would actually raise the dead. So Thomas's experience of doubt is, a, is an experience of having to reformulate or rethink or enlarge his understanding of this story of, of who God is and what he does. It's connected to growth. And that often happens in doubt where, you, where you, you, you run up against reality. Something isn't how you thought it was and you've actually got to expand or change your thinking. And that's a good thing. So the goal of knowing is to, is to know God fully and to understand who he actually is, not just to kind of believe a thing about him or what someone else says about him, but to know him. And that will mean times of change in how you think about him. And that's true of any relationship. You wouldn't expect you know, a, a nice little old couple who's been married for 60 years to relate to one another and think of one another in exactly the same way that they did when they were high school sweethearts or whatever. Because what would happen, in, and what does happen in any relationship is, particularly with people who are complex, you, you find out more about them. You learn things that are different about them, where they, where they value something that you didn't really understand or, or things that they did, or they respond differently to a situation than you thought they would. And a relationship is one of growth, it's not static. And I think that's often... Similarly, how like, faith tends to evolve in our lives. David Brooks, who is um, a writer for the New York Times, he wrote a book, The Second Mountain, where he describes his journey to faith. And he's got a, a little bit of an atypical, I think, journey to faith. He grew up in a Jewish home, so he was very familiar with the, with the Jewish religion as a child. But then in his teenage years, he got a bit of exposure to Christianity. He went on some camps and that kind of thing. But then in his 20s, his 30s, 40s, 50s, he lived as a secular agnostic, kind of what you described as like an, an ordinary person um, out in the world. But then in his 60s, following a divorce, which was a painful time obviously for him, he had to rethink his worldview and reevaluate his view of God and ultimately in that time came to a relationship with Jesus and began following him. And this is how he describes what faith has been in his life as it's grown. He says... A commitment to faith is a commitment to stick with it through all the various seasons of faith and even those moments when faith is absent. To commit to faith is to commit to the long series of ups and downs, to intuitions, learning and forgetting, knowing one sort of God when you're 25 and a very different God at 35, 55 and 75. It means writing out when life reveals itself in new ways and faith has to be reformulated once again. To commit to faith is to commit to change. Now, I, I certainly haven't had the same pathway as him or the same, I guess, degree of, of change in, in how I think of my faith. But it is the case that the way that I think of God now and relate to God now is very different to how it was when I was like a 10-year-old living in a, you know, growing up in a Christian home. So even when I was an 18-year-old who was following Jesus for myself for the first time to how it is now. And the most central stuff hasn't changed, you know, believing that, that God loves me and, and loves me so much that Jesus came and died for my sins, that I can have a relationship with him. That's kind of the, the solid bit in the middle. 
But understanding and thinking about what God values, how, how he relates to us, how he expects us to relate, relate to him, what he kind of wants for us in, in how we live our lives as his followers, has shifted in, in some ways that are you know, actually quite broad over my, over my time in following him. And so some of the most significant times of growth for me in actually rediscovering God afresh or learning some actually great new truth about him has been in times of doubt. And so if you are doubting, my encouragement to you would just be, in regards to this, that God might be using this time to show you some new part of himself, to, to maybe reveal himself to you in some new or fresh way, or to have you, even sometimes painfully, learn some part of his character that might be different to maybe what you were taught or to what you assumed. Doubt is an opportunity to grow. But secondly, doubt is an opportunity to follow. If you've spent a lot of time in church or maybe have grown up in it, um, you may have at, at times heard like a summary statement summing up what I guess Christianity is all about with something like this. It's not about what you do. You just have to believe. Now that's a statement that there's a, there's a lot in there in those couple of lines. And it's 100% true about how it is that we think about how and why God would love us. Um, God loves us not because of what we do. It's not something we can earn. It's not something we can kind of make happen for us. He just, he just does it. He loves us regardless of who we are and sent his son to die in our place. So all we've got to kind of do in response to that is just believe. And so there's... That's the kind of the gospel in a nutshell. And in one sense, that's a really helpful summary of it. It's not about what you do, you just have to believe. But the issue with that summary is if you kind of play it out, if, if the center of Christianity is just what you believe, and your beliefs are things that happen in your brain and your mind and in your head, then when you have doubts, whether they're intellectual doubts that are leveled against you, or experientially when it just feels like you're kind of floating in darkness and there's no one out there, then if it's all about what you believe, and that's kind of a bit shaky, then what is left? If that's what Christianity is and it's gone, then you've got a real problem. I think one of the things that I've kind of learned through doubt is that while that's a true summary statement about how we can be saved, how we can know God, it's not a true summary statement in terms of what Jesus calls us to in following him. The statement, it's not about what you do, when it comes to obeying Jesus' call in your life, is, is actually a false statement. Because following Jesus is something you do. And I want to suggest this is a way through doubt. Jumping across to another gospel, the gospel of Matthew, at a similar point in Jesus' life, it's just another, another telling of the story. In Matthew 28, verse 16, we see this little interaction. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So again, you've got these same group of people as in that last story. You've got this mix of them there. And this interesting thing in verse 17, there are a mix of worshippers and doubters. And so it's kind of a curious thing that Jesus is, is gathered these people and some of them in that mix are doubting. And so it's interesting to look at what, how does Jesus respond to the doubters there. What he doesn't do, he doesn't say, all right, Worshippers this side, doubters this side, doubters are peeling off. We're going back to basics with you guys. We've got to redo the, you know, the beginner's course. We're on hold until we get this sorted. That's not what he does. He gathers this mix of people and he says this. These lines which, um, if you've been in church a while, might be famous. They might be new to you. But he says, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, often I think if, if you're, you've heard this verse before, you might assume, well, that's, that's kind of Jesus' commission to the keen beans. Like, they're the people that, like, go and do crazy things, like go and be missionaries in other countries. Like, they're the ones who is really calling to this. But we ignore the fact that in that line before, that the people he's addressing, some of them are doubters. And so I want to just summarize the kind of idea I'm drawing from this by saying, look, Jesus calls doubters to follow him, which is to do something. It's to obey. It's to go and be a disciple, a learner, an apprentice under him, and to go and make other disciples and tell them this, this message and invite them to join in, in this, also in this life of obedience. In this instance, he's not saying take on a set of truth claims or figure something out, but he's saying follow, just walk in my way. And sometimes when we're doubting, we get caught in this kind of loop where we say to ourselves, I can't really follow until I've got this 100% intellectual certainty. I need to have all the questions cleared out, and then I'll start doing what Jesus says. But being a disciple is not about having stuff figured out in your head. It's about walking in Jesus' way, following him, obeying him. And it's not the case that you need to have 100% intellectual certainty to obey Jesus' call, to go and love your neighbor, to be generous, to be merciful, to be kind, to be humble, to even join the mission and just share this story, this news, this message that we have of hope and life. And I think what's been an important learning for me is realizing in times of doubt that the path through it isn't going to be locking myself in a, in a room and introspecting and, and pondering till I get to some level of certainty, but it's to commit to obedience, a long obedience in the one direction. To day after day, obey the call to seek, to, to do my best to love God and to love others. To try to think through life through the lens of what does God want from me today? And I'm going to just go and try as best I can to do it. And for me, that's been really helpful in those times of doubt. And it's been an art that I feel like I'm still like, trying to learn and grow in. But, but it's an opportunity that doubt provides. Doubt gives you the opportunity to follow. And finally, I just want to, finally of mine, there's probably a whole bunch more, but that I found helpful is that doubt can teach you to trust. To finish the account of Thomas's story, it says in verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Thomas is left in his doubt for a week, which um, you know, well, which would be a hard time for him. But then he gets this quite radical experience of Jesus, you know, appearing to him, risen from the dead, and gets this certainty given to him. And maybe when you read this, you feel a bit ripped off because that isn't the experience that we're told to expect. What we get instead is to be lumped in with this in verse twenty-nine, this group of people that Jesus says. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus is saying that for the most part, the type of belief you can expect to have, and he says it's blessed, which means kind of like happy or, or even better off. Better off are those who believe and yet have not seen. And that can be hard. Because I think often we, we long for certainty. We'd love to have that level of certainty that, that Thomas has the, the privilege of having. 
But the reality is that most of our biggest decisions in life aren't based on certainty, they're based on trust. So the decision to quit your job and start a new job is never based on the absolute certainty that that is going to be you know, the thing which kind of fulfills you, makes your life better, makes your work-life balance perfect, and you'll just be happy if you do it. But it's based on, like, I guess, trust and hope, based on what you know, that that's the right decision to make at that time. Or maybe a more significant decision, the decision to marry a person, is a decision of trust. To kind of make a decision for life, that the rest of your life is going to be stitched together with another person, that's not a decision that's made by hiring a private investigator to tail them for a few months, make sure they're faithful, but also just to dig out any like, habits or intricacies that you don't know about. I'm super glad that that didn't happen with me. Um, all, of my, all of the things that, that bother Sarah to no end would have been, would have been turned up. But that's not how we make those decisions, right? It's, it's trust. You've you got to know some stuff. Like, you know, you've got to figure out a few things. But at the end of the day, you're going into it not entirely sure how it's going to pan itself out. You trust. And you, and you try to be wise and prudent and, and know things. But that's what it, what it comes down to. And you might f- feel like, well, that's annoying. I don't want my decision about, you know, is there a God? Is there not a God? Is, is the most meaningful and best life I can have to be built on Jesus or not? to have to be based on trust. But the kind of harsh truth is that that's the reality of it. And it's an inescapable reality. And it's not just a matter of this. Every single person in the world has to make some form of decision about what their life is going to be built on, what they're going to think the meaning of life is, what are they going to decide why they're here. And no one is going to have absolute certainty about their answer to that question. You've got to do, in a sense, the best you can with what you've got. And so it's going to take some form or element of faith, belief, or trust. Even if you're committing to be an atheist or, or unsure or any other worldview. Now, I don't want to diminish your experience if you're someone who has felt in coming to faith in Jesus that you've had this overwhelming, clear-as-day sense of God's presence that's just like left no doubt in your mind that this is true. If that's your experience, then that's like fantastic for you. I kind of wish I had it. But, um, but for many people who wrestle with doubt, the decision to commit to following Jesus is probably a little bit more like this account of coming to faith of a, a bloke called Sheldon Vanuken who documented his conversion in his memoirs, where he describes this moment of realization that he has to make a choice like this. He says, There is a gap between the probable and the proved. How is I to cross it? If I were to stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof, I wanted certainty. I wanted to see him eat a bit of fish. I wanted letters of fire across the sky. I got none of these, and I continued to hang about on the edge of the gap. It was a question of whether I was going to accept him or reject him. My God, there was a gap behind me as well. Perhaps the leap to acceptance was a horrifying gamble, but what of the leap to rejection? There might be no absolute certainty that Christ was God, but there is no certainty that he was not. This was not to be born. I could not reject Jesus. There was only one thing to do once I had seen the gap behind me. I turned away from it and flung myself over the gap towards Jesus. I find this to be a really helpful way of framing the choice that every single person has to make. You've got to to decide something. Jesus is a matter of accepting or rejecting him. You you can either follow him or you can choose not to follow him. What are you going to stake your life on? And at the end of the day, you've got to decide what's the most compelling vision for life. Where are you going to go to for your hope and your joy and your security? And so I want to get personal here about why, even though I find myself 
every couple of years having like some significant doubt in my life. Why I keep coming back to Jesus again and again and again. I find that only in this worldview and in this claim is there a compelling vision for life. To decide that there's no personal God or to assume as though there is not one, I know for me it does not lead to a fruitful life. Because I find in myself that even when I'm doubting, when I'm feeling less sure that this is true, even then I find myself to be more selfish, more inward-looking, less likely to go out of my way in a sacrificial manner to love those around me, and I feel more meaningless and more hopeless. I'm left with the kind of choice between throwing myself into passivity, which is to say nothing really matters, or just like hedonism, which is trying to make myself happy with what I can do. But when I live out my commitment to trust God and follow him, to acknowledge and assume the reality that he's real and loves me, I find that inadvertently I'm being made into a better person, that the gospel has this kind of beautifying effect. But then even more than that, when I look out at the world and make, try to make sense of life, I find again and again and again there is a greater explanatory power in the Christian worldview and the Christian story than in any other one that I can find. It helps me make sense of what I can see and know to be true in front of me. So when I look out at the world, I see wonder and, and beauty and these marvels that are just mind-blowing. Because I was so stifled in lockdown, I spent my lockdown reading about books about trees. I read three books about trees. Um, because that, when are you going to do it if not in lockdown? And learning about how they, t they communicate with each other, how they, have, how they have families and relate to each other, like mother trees, children. This sounds like kind of hocus-pocus hippie stuff, but it's like really scientific, and no one knows about it. Trees communicate, and that's crazy. That's just one small part of the world. The world is, is wonderful, right? And you might not be as into trees as I am, but you've got to admit, the world is an amazing place. But then on the flip side, as much as you've got to make sense of the beauty that's out there, you've got to have a way of making sense of the horrors the brokenness, the, the evil, and the sin that needs explanation. You need to have an answer to the question, why is there so much darkness? What has happened? What has gone wrong to make people the way that they are? Then on top of that, I find myself an insatiable desire for meaning. I find the idea that my life is about nothing to be an intolerable thought, to say that my life has just no purpose whatsoever. I need an answer for that. I've also got a sense of justice, as I'm sure most people do, where we don't like people getting away with wrong, even if we're not the ones wronged. If you see someone wrong someone else, it, it bothers you. Why is that? Where does that come from, that justice? More recently for me, it's been looking at my son, who's like 18 months now, and concluding that he's got a soul. He's not just a meat-powered Tamagotchi that I'm meant to look after. <laughs> and like that's pretty harsh, right? But they're... Like, they're the options that are before you, right? It's just like a task, or he's got meaning. What the Bible calls the image of God. And to believe that the seven billion people on this planet have a value and a worth, if, if you do believe that these people have a value and a worth, you've got to work out why do you, where is that value and that worth from? More than that, I look at Jesus, I find him compelling, the way that he loved, the way that he seemingly defies every other culture on the planet to kind of epitomize what it is to be a person of compassion and mercy and lo love and justice all wrapped up into one. I look at the claims that he has made, which if any other person made them, you'd think would be mad. Just take the claim that Jesus made. This is 2,000 years ago before there were airplanes or ships. He said that the entire world, everywhere in the world, there'd be people worshipping him and treating him like God. If anyone else made that claim, 
one, you'd be crazy. Two, it wouldn't come true. But Jesus said that. It's written down from 2,000 years ago, and it's happened. And what you find in the world today is people in every corner of the earth being made into better, loving people by following him. Not only that, when I switch off my phone, which I need to do more often, and just sit in, in quiet and be alone, there are times when I can sense God's presence with me, and I can speak to him, and his words in the Bible speak to me. And so when I put all these things together, I start to say, well, what do I make of all of this? But there's actually even more. There's even more to it. I find in Jesus and in the Christian worldview an answer to what, if I'm being honest, is my deepest need. That the darkness, the sin, the brokenness isn't just something I see on the news, but it's something I find in myself. That I'm a person that is in need of healing and grace and forgiveness. And if you've ever had that sense that you need forgiveness, healing, cleaning, there is nowhere else you can go to get it. No one else offers what Jesus offers. Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. And he says there is an answer in him, that he, is, he can give you grace. He can make you new. He can make you whole. And even when I think about all that, the way that all those things come together and reminds me that this is what I want to stake my life on, do I sometimes still feel like, well, look, maybe I'm just deluded. Maybe, you know, we're just kind of atoms and molecules and it's a fluke. And I've just pictured this whole thing up in my head. Maybe. If I'm being honest, there's like still some part of me that says, yeah, maybe. But I, I hope it isn't. I hope that's not the case. I know what I want to be true. And I know what I want to commit to. I want to commit to Jesus. I've got to make a leap. I've got to make a jump somewhere. And I'm going to jump to him. And I don't take that to be a blind leap in the dark, but I take that to be a leap from darkness into light. To trust that Jesus is not going to let me down. And that's a trust that I think I can only fully grasp because of some of the doubts that I've experienced. Because I've had to think about it and weigh it up and understand just what is on offer here. So my answer to the question, can I believe and still doubt, is yes. Because while doubting you can see that as an opportunity to grow, to seek God, ask him, and then just wait upon him to reveal himself to you afresh once again. It's, my answer is yes, because you can doubt and still follow. There's nothing about doubting that means that you are not able to take up Jesus' call to follow him, to love God and to love your neighbor, as best as you're able in that moment. And with doubting, you can trust. With the best evidence before you, you can throw yourself on the reality that Jesus is the best and maybe even the only shot that you've got to have life, to have forgiveness, to have meaning, to be part of this world in a way that makes sense. And so, just to be clear, I'm not saying that, therefore, ignore your doubts, be an ostrich, put your head in the sand, ignore them, brush them aside. There might be still work to do, conversations to have, digging to, to do. But I want to encourage you, or just say to you even, that the best place to do that is under the umbrella of God's grace. To work through your doubts while continuing as you're able to trust that God is for you, that he loves you, that He has shown that love by sending Jesus into this world to die for you, and to trust that he wants you to know him. And to do that surrounded by a community of people who are committed to helping you make sense of what is, uh, frankly, a, often a ridiculous and confusing life. The doubt might be a long process. It might be like renovating a house where you just have to do one little bit at a time. But I want to caution you against 
as Jez alluded to before, doubt being just a reason to just tear everything down, break it all and start again, giving you the worldview equivalent of homelessness. So if you're doubting, we want to invite you to keep walking through those doubts with us. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. I really believe that in pursuing the truth, in seeking God, that won't ultimately leave you in the dark. But sometimes that takes time, and we want to be with you while you do that. So if you are someone who's new to all this, this is all very fresh ideas, maybe half of what I said was like without context and made no sense to you, apologies. But then also we've got this thing called Alpha, which is really for people who are exploring, beginning that journey, trying to make sense of it, asking questions. And that's a safe place to ask any question that you've got. There's no question that's going to be like frowned upon, looked down upon, with think silly, anything like that. It'll be in this building, there'll be good food, and it starts in two weeks' time. If that's something you're interested in, we'd love to hear from you um, in just a moment. But then also, if you're someone, maybe that doesn't feel right for you because you've maybe been in church for years and years and years, but you've still got doubts. Maybe you've been, you were at church for ages, then you've kind of stopped for a few years, and now you're kind of open to it, but not really sure and a little bit cautious. Um, we want to get you into a community where you can just be, be free to, to be who you are, ask the questions you've got, and be loved. And so we'd love to hear from you, um, just to reach out to us. And the best way to reach out to us with either of those two things would be if you're here in the building, there's a white card on your seat and a pen, just write down anything on there. You want to find out more about Jesus, you've got doubts you want to talk to someone about, you're not sure what the next step is, but you know there needs to be a next step. Right on there, because we'd love to be in touch with you about that. If you're online, in the comment section, I think any moment now, there'll be a Google form that'll drop in there. Same deal, we'd love to hear from you in that moment. So what we're going to do now, I'm just going to pray for our time, and then before we finish our time with just one more song, I'm just going to give you a minute or two to respond, to, to fill in those cards if that's something you want to do, or jump on the Google form, and then we're going to finish our time in some song. I'm just going to pray now before we do that. Heavenly Father, we just want to just bring our doubts and our uncertainties before you, knowing that you are a good and merciful God who has revealed yourself in so many ways, who has given us answers. And we know that sometimes we don't always feel like those are satisfactory for us in that moment, but we do know that you're a good God who doesn't love us based on the strength of our faith, but loves us based on your love for us. And that what you're willing to do in showing that, confirming that, committing to that. And so we just ask as we continue just to seek the light and to seek the truth and wherever we're at in that journey that you'd be with us, that you'd help us be a place where we can help one another in that as well. And that you would continue to reveal yourself to us as we need. In Jesus' name, amen.